Take your Bibles, turn to Mark 15, uh, excuse me, Mark 14. 15 is next week. Mark 14. One message seems clear in our world today as we consider all that is going on around us. Uh, Justice seems to be in grave danger. Whether we want to discuss the racial conflicts in our country or the debates uh, in every state, definitely here in Michigan, uh, regarding the powers of the governor, uh, the glaring hypocrisy of our national leaders, or the uh, really discriminate application of various orders between various groups, uh, the common theme is a lack of justice. To be honest, most people don't even know what justice is anymore, what it would look like. We just know that this isn't it. Whatever justice is, it's not this. Too many times we've seen justice fail in the courtrooms. Those of us who are older, so many of us remember O.J. walking free as we shockingly heard that not guilty verdict. We've seen religious institutions forced to provide abortive birth controls. We've seen wedding services forced to provide their services for homosexual unions. We've seen miscarriages of justice, which led us to shake our heads in absolute perplexity. We wonder what's going to become of our world with each passing day. We wonder what kind of world our children and our grandchildren are going to inherit as justice continues to fail. But all of this pales in comparison with the ultimate miscarriage of justice that took place 2,000 years ago. On that fateful morning, God himself experienced the most unjust ruling ever handed down. On that morning, Jesus suffered injustice. But this was not without purpose in the divine plan of God. Jesus suffered injustice to make us just. As we look at our text this morning, we'll do so in two parts. And as is typical of Mark, he sandwiches two narratives together, two scenes together in order to teach us an important lesson. And so, Let's look at the two scenes in this narrative today in order to revel in the amazing grace of God in salvation and to be encouraged to stand with boldness for Christ regardless of the cost. So the first scene that we're going to look at is the injustice in the courtroom. The injustice in the courtroom. This is verses 53 to 65 of Mark 14. Mark writes, And they led Jesus to the high priest, And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make what it is that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. 
And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. As we begin to examine this scene and the lessons for us in it, we'll break it down into three parts. And the first part contains the false witnesses. The chief priests and the whole council in verse 53 were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We've heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands and rebuild another temple not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. We see right from the outset that this is a fixed trial. They're not seeking the truth. They're not seeking to determine whether Jesus was guilty of the crime. In fact, they didn't even have a crime. They they hadn't determined yet what his crime was. This was not a trial based on an already formulated accusation. They didn't have one. They were convinced simply that Jesus must die. And so they gathered together to figure out a reason why they could do this. They had to find a reason that would cover them in the sight of Rome and in the sight of the people. While the charge was not yet determined, the verdict was already determined. Jesus was guilty and must die. But they ran into a snag. Jesus was sinless. Jesus had no fault. He was guilty of no crime. And so they attempted to bring false witnesses to lie about Jesus. These men who would lie before the court about things he said and did. But as is always the case with false witness, there was no consistency in their testimony. They they couldn't agree. Mark uh, notes at this point that it appears even the members of the court themselves, the Sanhedrin, began to stand up and attempt to get charges to stick. Some stood up and falsely testified that Jesus stated he would destroy the temple and build a new one. But Jesus had never said that he would destroy the temple, simply that it would be destroyed, that it was going to happen. And you'll note they said this temple constructed with hands, but he would build a new one not made with hands. And it's interesting, Jesus never said he'd destroy the physical temple. He, he told his disciples instead that one day it would be destroyed. He, he also stated that his body would be killed. And three days later, would be resurrected. And so even in this accusation, they couldn't agree on the details. And this was important because Jewish law stated that to condemn someone to death, there had to be two or three witnesses to agree to the charge. And if they couldn't get the witnesses to agree, then the charge against Jesus would would lose its authority. They would lose its veracity in the sight of the people. And so this kangaroo court decided and continued to seek a way to condemn Jesus to death. And at this point, the proceedings take an interesting turn. We see Jesus' divine statement. Verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make what, is it, what it is that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
The high priest Caiaphas takes control of the proceedings and begins to question Jesus himself. He asks him if he has no answer, anything to say about these witnesses, these false charges brought before him. And in your mind's eye, you can picture Jesus in absolute serenity, gazing back at Caiaphas in complete silence. He refused to dignify the lies with any sort of answer. They were lies. Everyone knew they were lies. There was no reason for him to even attempt to defend himself against these false charges. And this silence exemplifies Jesus' absolute control, even over these proceedings against him. You and I probably would have used this opportunity to decry the injustice that was taking place, to plead our our innocence. Perhaps we would have cursed the Sanhedrin. Perhaps we would have pled our innocence and their guilt, but not Jesus. He knew this was the way. He had surrendered himself to the will of the Father, and he he would not turn back. So in absolute serenity, he stood in silence before Caiaphas. This was also a fulfillment of a prophecy made thousands of years earlier by Isaiah, when he said in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Infuriated by this silence, Caiaphas took a different tactic. He asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now the blessed was a reverential statement used to avoid pronouncing the name of God. They, they believed it blasphemy to openly state the name of God out loud. And as they were attempting to accuse Jesus of blasphemy, it was important that in the midst they avoided blasphemy themselves. Further, as they talk about the Christ, the Son of God, we need, we need to know that they understood that uh, the Jews of that day viewed the Son of God, the Christ, solely in a messianic sense as a man. They didn't believe that the Messiah was going to be God himself. But Jesus now responds and dispels all questions. Caiaphas asked, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus responds, I am. This was more than simply a statement of affirmation. Jesus was proclaiming himself to be God by using this divine name of God, I am. From Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Unless there be a question that Jesus was claiming deity in this, Jesus expounds. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus claims to be the I am that led Israel out of Egypt, but he also claims to be the son of man. And this was a title found in the book of Daniel given to the second person of the Trinity, God himself, Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So he says, I am, and I'm the son of man, and I will sit at the right hand of God. This is referring to Psalm 110.1, where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, God's right hand was reserved for no man. This was a claim of absolute authority 
through deity. Jesus stated without question that he was God in the flesh. And as if this was not enough, Jesus informed them that he would come in the clouds of heaven. Again, this refers to Daniel when God himself would come and judge the nations. One man put it this way, Now Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are sitting in judgment on him. In that day, Jesus will pass final and irrevocable judgment on them. We see this pictured in Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. With absolute authority, Jesus looked in the eyes of his accusers and announced to them, That he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the I am God in the flesh and their divine judge. They might condemn and kill him on that day, but he would rise again. He would ascend to the right hand of the Father. And they might judge him unjustly today, but he will judge them eternally with perfect justice. We're reminded of the injustice that takes place around us. We see evil being called good and good being called evil. Abortion clinics called essential, while churches are called unessential. Rioters called peaceful. Worshippers called dangerous. And we question. We cry out. We fear. But we're reminded that the just judge still reigns. Even as he stood before a kangaroo court experiencing injustice on our behalf, he remained resolute and he reminded the scoffers that he reigns. And the day is coming when all will be forced to acknowledge his lordship and he will judge the world with perfect justice. But on that day, injustice had to occur. On that day, Jesus had to be condemned. On that day, Jesus had to suffer so that through suffering injustice, we might be made just before God. Hearing Jesus' answer, the room erupted into chaos, resulting in an unjust condemnation and beating. In verse 63, it says, The high priest tore his garment and said, What further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Upon hearing Jesus' authoritative statement, Caiaphas began to tear his clothes. Now, in the Old Testament, originally this was a sign of grief. However, in the case of the high priest, over time, it became a form of a judicial act regulated by the Talmud. And it was an act that served to show that the high priest had just heard blasphemy for a mere man To acclaim equality with God was rightly regarded as blasphemy. And that individual was to be condemned to death. This is found in Leviticus 24.16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put 
to death. But the sentence Caiaphas called for was illegal because Jesus wasn't committing blasphemy. He wasn't guilty of blasphemy. You see, Jesus' words were absolutely true. In reality, it was the high priest and the Sanhedrin who were committing blasphemy because they rejected Jesus. They had to accuse him of using, uh, they had accused him of using the power of Satan. And now they were about to kill God himself. The ultimate injustice was taking place. The blasphemers were accusing God himself of blasphemy. And as the council voted to condemn Jesus, it was as if a dam had been breached and, and pandemonium erupted as, as various members of the council descended on Jesus and began to beat him mercilessly. It's interesting, in constructing verse 65, Mark uses the words from several different Old Testament texts. 1 Kings 22-24, Then Zedekiah came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to you? Isaiah 50, verse 6, he says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. In Isaiah 53, in verses 3 through 5, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. Micah 5.1, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This was fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that they would mercilessly beat Jesus. And they spit on him. Spitting on an individual was as humiliating then as it is today. It demonstrated an absolute hatred and, and lack of regard for that person. Matthew 26 and Luke 22 shed light on the significance of covering his face and demanding him to prophesy. They add the words, who hit you? This was their way of trying to make a mockery of Jesus' messianic claims. You see, there was a rabbinical interpretation of Isaiah 11 that stated that the judge, the Messiah, could judge by smell, not, not necessarily by sight. He didn't need it. So they mocked him. They, they covered his face. They, they blindfolded him. And it says they struck him. It means they, they hit him with, the, with their fists. Literally, they began to punch him and to beat him. Perhaps the most ironic part of their request for Jesus to prophesy as they were beating him mercilessly and spitting on him was that they were already fulfilling prophecies Jesus had made. Remember Mark 8, verse 31? He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. A little bit later in Mark 10, 33 and 34, Jesus said, See, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, they'll rise again. So even as they're doing these things and demanding he prophesy, they were fulfilling his very own prophecy. 
And through this, Mark further underlines the injustice of the situation. Jesus was innocent. Jesus was who he claimed to be. It was the leaders who were evil. They were peddlers of a false narrative. They were intentionally ignorant and willfully cruel, while Jesus is the all-knowing God filled with tender compassion and mercy. And yet it was Jesus who was condemned and beaten. And to complete the humiliation and injustice, the soldiers also received Jesus with blows. Literally, they received him with open hand slaps to the face. Jesus stood serenely and authoritatively in the face of injustice. He willingly subjected himself to the sinful acts of evil men, all so that we might be made just. So great is our salvation. However, all this was taking place, as it was taking place, we're given a glimpse into our own wayward hearts through the heart and the actions of one of Christ's closest friends and a pillar of the church. Through Peter, we now turn secondly to the second scene, failure in the courtyard. While injustice was taking place in the courtroom, failure was taking place in the courtyard. Mark sandwiches the narrative about Peter around Jesus' trial, and he does so to create the contrast between the two responses. Jesus serenely and authoritatively subjected himself to injustice, while Peter failed. He begins in verse 53. They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And then he switches back to Jesus and later picks back up with Peter in verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And a little while... After a little while, the bystander again said to Jesus, said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. In this narrative, Peter stands as a picture of our own wayward hearts. We observe his failure in two ways. First, we see his failure to remain faithful. Three times he denies Jesus. Peter had followed Jesus from a distance, managed to get inside the courtyard of Caiaphas' compound there in Jerusalem. Now, this compound was uh, consisted of, of several homes that Caiaphas owned, and in it lived all of Caiaphas' family, and also his father-in-law, the previous high priest, Annas. And these various homes were structured around a central courtyard. 
And while Jesus was above in a large meeting room in Caiaphas' house, Peter was in the courtyard below with the soldiers and other interested parties. And as the night grew colder, a fire was built in the fire pit there in the center of the courtyard. And Peter made his way to the fire in order to warm himself. And as he sat there with the soldiers, a servant girl of the high, high priest recognized him. We're not told how she recognized him. Only that she did. And she accused him of being one of the Jesus people. Even the way she said it was filled with disdain. You were one of those with the Nazarene Jesus. And Peter's response is not one of boldness. He does not follow Jesus into the jaws of death. Instead, out of fear of being arrested himself, Peter immediately responds that he has no idea what she's talking about. I don't even know what you're saying. But her question scares him enough that he moves away from the fire over into the gateway. Here there's less light. He hopes maybe the darkness will conceal his identity. However, it's not long before that pesky servant girl shows back up. This time she tells the people around Peter there in the gateway that he's one of the Jesus people. And again... Peter denies his loyalty. We can picture the people around Peter taking a closer look at him as he becomes all the more nervous. Finally, one of the bystanders states, certainly you are one of them. You're a Galilean. Perhaps it was a distinct accent the Galileans spoke with. Perhaps it was distinct clothing the Galileans wore. Whatever it was, the bystander recognized that Peter was from northern Israel. He was from the same area as Jesus. Surely he was one of the Jesus people. Peter now is like a cornered animal. He called down curses on himself if he was lying and swore that he didn't know this man you're talking about. Mark says he invoked a curse. Peter invokes a curse on himself if his denials are false. He says, may God's wrath pour on me if I'm lying. I don't know him. The first two times Peter denied being identified with Jesus. This last time invoking the curse, he denies Jesus himself. Now, lest we be hard on Peter, we need to look at our own hearts. As Peter had done earlier that day, we love to proclaim our faithfulness to Jesus. We're all in for Jesus. We're Christians. But then the world takes notice. We're given the opportunity to demonstrate our allegiance to Christ, and we fail. Conversations with neighbors or friends or co-workers force us to make a decision. And often we're silent. We can be silent, we can deny Christ, or we can stand for Christ. And often we choose the silence. Other times we choose to act like unbelievers. We loudly proclaim our loyalty to Christ until our schedules or our pocketbook are impacted. And then we quickly... And quietly change our tune. The moment following Christ is no longer fun or popular, we fail in our faithfulness. We're like Peter. Failure to remain faithful. We also see his failure to heed God's warning. 
Just hours earlier, Jesus had informed the disciples that they would scatter. Peter renounced Jesus' statement, claiming that he would die with Jesus if he needed to. But Jesus responded that not only would he remain alive, Peter would deny Jesus three times. Jesus warned him, and Peter brushed it off. In his self-arrogance and his confidence, he ignored Jesus' warning. Mark hints at this in verse 68. says, he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. We don't know if Peter heard the rooster. We do know that this serves as a reminder that Jesus had warned Peter this was going to happen. Immediately following the denial, Peter informs us in verse 17 and or verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, "Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times." Luke 22 adds an interesting twist. Luke 22:61. Apparently at this time, Jesus was being led out of that upper room where he was being tried. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Jesus had warned Peter, and he didn't listen. He walked right into the sin. Again, we do the same thing. We think that because we do Jesus stuff, we're good. We'll not fail. We have Jesus. And we ignore the warnings, and because of that, we will fail. One man says it this way. The effect of this way of telling the story is to throw Jesus and Peter into sharp contrast. Both will be under pressure, but whereas Jesus, both in his silence and then his final dramatic utterance, will stand firm, Peter will crumble. Jesus will go to his death, but with his witness to his mission undiminished. Peter will escape, but at the cost of his integrity as a disciple of Jesus. And Mark's message to us is is that if denial of Jesus Christ was possible for an apostle, one of the leaders of the apostles at that, we must be constantly on guard over our own hearts, lest we too deny Jesus. Perhaps this is why Peter later wrote in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, Be sober. Be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Yet, in spite of Peter's failure, and in spite of our failure, Jesus suffered injustice to make us just. That's the glory of Jesus' sacrifice. It's not based on our value or our works. It is based solely on the person of God. Because Jesus suffered unjustly and unjustly, we, when we respond with repentance and faith, when we Respond to Christ, we're made righteous. God is just to declare us righteous. When Peter realized what he'd done, he responded with repentance. Peter's weeping 
was a sign of sorrow and repentance. And after his resurrection, Jesus restored Peter. He became a leader of the early church. That's why Peter later wrote in 1 Peter 5.10, After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Here's what we're trying to get across this morning. Jesus serenely and authoritatively suffered injustice in our place. And through his suffering, we are justified. But this comes with a responsibility. We must daily live out our salvation. We must daily stand for God in a world that regularly, loudly, and oftentimes violently denies God. We must be willing to stand for him. We need to stand for God as boldly as many of us stand for the Constitution or, or for patriotism or for our political party or for our favorite sports team or for Ford or for Chevy or whatever it is you stand for. As I mentioned in my letter Friday, this world needs the gospel. Not some almost gospel, not some convenient gospel, but the gospel that states we are depraved, wicked sinners with nothing good in ourselves. But God in his love took that wrath we deserved on himself. He suffered injustice in our place so that when we make him the Lord of our life, when we turn to him, he makes us righteous. This gospel is not a popular message. But it's the only message that is the power of God. So stand for Christ. Revel in the truth of his grace. And thankfully contemplate his authority in the face of injustice. What does this mean for us? It means three things this morning. Number one, it means that we, you need to surrender to Christ for salvation. You see, the answer to this world's ills are not political change. The answer to this world's ills are not social change. The answer to this world's ills is the gospel. The world is in the state it is in because the church has surrendered the power of God, the gospel of Christ. Too many in the church, are relying on the fact that one day when they were young, in order to appease a parent or simply to get out of hell, they prayed some prayer. But they've never come to a recognition of their own sin. They've never repented of their sin and given their lives to God. They've believed in almost gospel, not the gospel itself. And so I call you this morning to look at your life and ask yourself whether you have believed the gospel whether you have given your life to Christ, recognizing your utter depravity. Secondly, we need to stand firm in the face of injustice. This world is filled with injustice. It is everywhere. And we are called to be a people of God who love justice, but this justice is found only in Christ. 
Justice does not mean that we respond in like kind. Justice does not mean that we begin to act like unbelievers. Justice means we rely on Christ and the ruler of the world who will one day make everything right. You see, we do not have to respond to evil with evil. We can respond to evil with good because one day the just judge will rule the world in righteousness. We don't have to condemn it because God will take care of it. Our call is to proclaim the gospel. And so finally, we must sacrifice all for the cause of Christ. Too often we're like Peter in the courtyard. People look at us and say, you're one of those Jesus people. In embarrassment or in shame, we cower. We dodge the question. Too often we have the opportunity to stand for the gospel, to declare the truth of Christ, and we are silent in shame. Instead, we ought to sacrifice all for Christ. We're willing to go as far as it takes us for Christ until it hurts a little bit, and then we stop there. But God has called us to sacrifice everything on his behalf. He gave it all for us. What more can we do for him? Rather than moan in the state of this world, we ought to stand in joyful triumph knowing that we have the answer. We hold the truth that can change this world. So let us not be silent. Let us not be scared. Let us not stand in shame. Instead, let us, like Christ, stand serenely in the face of injustice and declare the glorious message that our God saves. Father, we thank you for the incredible gift that you gave us in Christ. Lord, all those years ago when man rebelled against you, you could have started over. All those years ago... When man rebelled against you and you destroyed it, you could have seen fit not to preserve any but to start over. And yet in your grace, you continued the promise. And all those years ago, you could have left us in our sin, but you sent your son on our behalf to suffer the ultimate injustice. So Lord, help us to stand boldly for the name of Christ. Help us to beware lest Satan capture our hearts and deceive us and devour us, but instead to stand firm in your word and with your people. Help us not to be weary and well-doing in the midst of a lost and dying world, but instead to look forward and live in light of the eternal kingdom when one day you will rule in absolute righteous justice. Thank you for that promise that this is not the end. Thank you for the hope that we have through Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.